previously on the Enneagram Journey. This is a safe place. It's a place where we can feel free sharing our feelings. Think of my office as a nest in a tree of trust and understanding. We can say anything here. Anything. It's okay, honey. That's why we came. I just don't understand why your mom gives you so much. Uh, you know, she's my mom. She wants me to succeed in life. <laughs> Whatever the hell that means. Jesus, I'm just glad my mom's not like that. So I called your house today at 2. You were still asleep, weren't you? <laughs> That's an understatement. So what did you do last night? I trust my little angel didn't do anything immoral. Well, um, let's see. And, and sadly, I had really thought about this. And um, I said to him, you know, Beach, I've been thinking a lot about how much you're struggling. And I, I wonder, w would it help, do you think, if you could be just a little bit more like other kids? So there's not a worse thing to say to a four. Like, I, I couldn't have spent time creating up the meanest thing I could think of to say. And then that would have been it. It would be like, this is the most inappropriate thing you can probably say. It will damage him for a very long time. So why don't you go with this? What? What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? Oh, we are deep in the trust tree in today's episode of the Enneagram Journey Podcast with Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and today's guests are another mother-son dynamic duo out of Richmond, Virginia, Scott and Teresa McBean. Scott's a five, Teresa's a six, and they run the North Star community there in Richmond. Fun fact, all three of us are married to Andy Garmons. Today's show was recorded live at Coco and Hazel in Richmond, so you're going to get some great Q&A during the second half of the show and a special appearance from our very own Laura Addis, Anagram 3. Next on the tour, with space still available, is Denver, Colorado, and our guest is Nadia Bowles-Weber. And I, we can see Brad and Becky Hensley, who are friends of the podcast and have been on in years past. That's going to be July 15th and 16th, and you can still sign up at lifeinthetrinityministry.com and join us. Nadia's so great to hear, and Nadia and Suzanne together is unbelievable, and I'll just try to stay out of their way, probably. Uh, this podcast and teaching tour has been so great, and it is time to announce two more stops and open up registration for Charlotte, North Carolina, September 9th and the 10th, and San Francisco, California, October 7th and 8th. Come experience the podcast live. You're going to treasure the time. I guarantee we have a lot of fun. Uh, and here's what I continue to hear after Suzanne teaches at each stop on Saturday. People come out and they say, that wasn't what I was expecting, and it was exactly what I needed to hear. So visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com, sign up to join us, come, be surprised, and hear something new. Now, let's cut to our time at Coco and Hazel with Scott and Teresa McBean and other friends on the journey in Richmond. And tonight, you get to hear their applause and the applause button. So, there it is. Joel keeps telling me when we're recording anything that he's hitting the applause button, but I can't hear it. So, like, I never really know if there's an applause button, and it's Joel, so I really never really know. So, 
Um, we're super excited to be here. <laughs> oh, if people knew what I'm so my excited life is right really now. like. Um, we're so excited to be here. We can't figure out how long we've been coming. We tried to think about this, and we couldn't figure it out either. A really long time. Yeah, so here's what I know. I looked up one time in, were we in the Micah Center? We were in the Micah Center. And the four of you, you and Peter, and Rob and Jean were on the front row for a while, and then you and Peter and Jean were on the front row because somebody thought playing softball was more important than being learning from me. This is all true. Well, and he chose it time after time, so there is no oops. It's like he knew what he was missing, and he played softball. Yeah. So I think that has to have been 10 years ago, at least. You think that? Yes. Yeah, yeah at least, at least 10. 10 years. And then I think we've been coming here for seven. Have we been coming here for seven? How long have we known each other? Don't know. <laughs> Let's see, it's been 10 years since Rob quit on you for softball, so... Yeah, seven. We'll go with seven. 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 And we love to come to Richmond. And um, I'm not sure what all the reasons are. Um, I know that one of them is that people in this community are so teachable. You know, some communities, people are there, but they're not teachable. And this community is just... Everybody wants to learn and wants to know more and wants to be better and do better. And so that's a super great thing. Um, then we've been coming all these years except for the two during COVID. And in the beginning, did we come three times a year or twice a year? I think twice a year. For three years. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Twice a year for three years. And then you kind of, it's your summer home or your fall retreat, Right. So uh, we're still here, and I have notes because I, I tell stories at the beginning, and it wastes time. Um, I want you to know that Joel's a seven, and Teresa's a six, and Scott's a five, and I'm not in that triad. So this is the fear triad, also the head triad. They all belong together. I'm the outsider, and they're all three married to ones on the Enneagram, and I'm not... We have a strong one representation in our community. We were at Joel's wife, Whitney's birthday party, I don't know, not a month ago, and um, a friend of theirs is, and ours is a hospital chaplain. And I uh, was talking to him and I said, Chad, like, what's happening at the hospital? Now that there's not so much COVID, what are you dealing with primarily? And he said addiction. And he said it's like every third person, and it's scary, and I feel inadequate because I've never had such depth in relationship to addiction to deal with and dealing with family and all the things that have happened from that. So uh, I thought we'd start right there since you all uh, turned a addiction program, a recovery program into a church. It seems like a good place to talk to the two of you about lots and lots and lots of stuff. For the people that aren't here and aren't in Richmond or don't know, can you give some background on the North Star community and what she's talking about and then answer her question? Well, we've been around for over 20 years, and uh, some of the people that started it are in this room tonight. Um, Susan Wolf 
um, was one of the people that was on the team that started it. We started it as a recovery ministry as a part of a large Southern Baptist church. And um, now it has its own little building, and it limps along in the way that um, humble little recovery ministries do. But we really try to be a community for people who have either um, their substance use disorders or their family and, and their families, and also people who just don't quite fit, feel at home in a traditional church setting. So my dear best friend coined a phrase that we all live with, we're not much of a church um, kind of church. Boy, I bet a lot of people say that's just what I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, our marketing team is just out of the world. You know, I'm being sarcastic, of course, but yeah, yeah. So that's what we're about, and so we try to provide resources for uh, personal growth and development and recovery and just how to figure out how to do life a little bit better. And so, Scott, did you just look at Teresa one day and say, you know, I kind of want to come work with you, or I know I'll go out to California and do all the work, and then I'll come back and want to work with you? Did she say, hey, we need help shipping some boxes, and then it just turned into a job? <laughs> Um, uh, long story short, I just always really valued the work that my mom and their friends did. Um, I grew up in the church and um, saw them working with people who actually really seemed to need help. And not that most people who go to church don't need help, but this kind of obvious sort of help. Um, I really valued the type of work that they did. And I, it just seemed like there should be more people doing it. And um, it, it could be the case that I was wrong about that, and there's one too many people doing it. Um, so went to Fuller Seminary because uh, they had a recovery ministry program. Nobody else had one. We also knew the guy who led the program, so that was nice. Um, so, yeah, moved across the country, which was a horrible thing for a five to consider doing, a young five. And, yeah, went through that whole process and, and came back. The plan was always to come back and work for North Star if I could, if they would have me. And um, there was a few people that took some convincing, but we made it work. And now you have a new degree? I, I do, yeah. That's um, what I hear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got a master's in uh, rehabilitation and mental health counseling from VCU. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. That's pretty great. So now you're like the whole package, right? You can just do it all. Yeah, I'm the Kevin Durant of recovery <laughs> ministry. That's fantastic. <laughs> During COVID, how has the North Star community been affected and how are y'all responding? And do you see changes coming? Uh, is it bad, better, hopeful, scary? It was really super hard. It was super hard for me, I think, because I've come to think that I have a very overactive uh, social instinct. Okay. And um, so it felt devastating. And it felt like, um, <clears throat> you know, being part of a recovery ministry, you lose, you, you sometimes feel like you lose more than you win because you don't notice your wins that much. I mean, I know, I know we have wins, right? but you really feel your losses. Um, and um, so then to be 
to believe that connection is such a vital part for recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't believe that you get connected so that you can increase your Sunday school attendance. We're not organized enough to have a Sunday school, right? It's not going very well in most churches, so no worries. Okay. But to believe that connectivity is the difference between life and death and then to have to shut down. And we were very clear that in the physical space we had, we had to go to Zoom. Yeah. And it was really, really, it was really challenging to do that. And I'm guessing challenging to the point that you can't, at least in my experience, because I taught on Zoom a lot, you can't read nuance on Zoom. You can't see the look that you miss if you look down or you grab your water or you, like all of the ways that we read people, particularly in recovery rooms, you can't read. Yeah, I mean, we eventually feel like we got a little bit more of the hang of it, but it is extremely exhausting. But I think, I think you know, I kind of had a nervous breakdown after about month three, but then I, we kind of... We made it work because it was the only way it was going to work, and and um, it just felt very essential to do that. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, it, and and I think that it has been so um, disturbing in that every every system has been disturbed the way we do think it has for us too. We're a teaching ministry primarily on the road, so everything felt disturbed, like nothing. I have a big one wing, and so in our home, Joe's a nine, but he also has a big one wing, and we don't have kids at home anymore. Everything in our house is where it goes. And, and when I walk in and it's not there, it's disturbing to me. It's like, and, and it sometimes for me is a, it's a this. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just not quite the way I had it this morning. And I, I realized using that metaphor that that was every part of my life. And then... They remodeled grocery stores while we couldn't go to them. Like, where is the stuff, right? I am, I I thought, I'm about to settle into this. And we went to the grocery store. And they moved everything. Everything. And I'm, now I'm mad at them, but I don't want to change. (laughs) A depart, another, you know, like everything has changed. And people who were holding out for things to be the way they used to be, like North Star and LTM, they're not the way they used to be because they can't be the way they used to be. I was going to say, I think uh, in retrospect, maybe the hardest part for, for me is uh, has been dealing with knowing how many people I'm disappointing with some of the choices that I'm making, right? And so no matter what choice you make, that's the, sort of the big challenge of making decisions about what to do with a space during the pandemic is like mm-hmm. which group of people am I willing to disappoint or, and, and live with that? My wife and I and um, her sister and um, my brother-in-law, we all follow um, Dr. Becky for parenting tips on Instagram. So I'm giving her a plug. So one of the scripts that she gave, I'll try to make this quick, um, is like, you know, around the holidays, when it comes to parenting, like you're going to need breaks. And that's going to mean sometimes you're going to have to disappoint your spouse. Right? And so like, it's okay to disappoint people sometimes right, to do something that you need to do for yourself. So there was something that she said about that, and it's great. You should look it up on Instagram, and it's super helpful. But I also took away something larger from that that I had never thought about before, which is it is okay to disappoint people from time to time if you're doing something you feel like you need to do. So I've been able to settle into that a a little bit, probably not as much as I'd like to. 
Um, but that's been one of the things that's helped because that is definitely the hardest part is like, you know, we've lost a bunch of people because of how we made decisions or the types of decisions that we made or what the decisions that we made perhaps say about us and how we think about the world. And that sucks. They're disappointed. It's okay. So I'm so distracted. I'm not thinking about the next question because I want to be sure to remember to tell Reverend Stabile that that has to be new language that we use and that they use at the church because you have to disappoint some people to do what you know is the right thing, what you know to be the right thing to do, whether they agree or not. And it's been a time of great disappointment, and I haven't heard anybody put it that way. And I think it's really helpful, really helpful. And it seems that responses to disappointment have been dualistic responses. Everything is either right or wrong, good or bad, up or down, I want it or I don't, all of that, which has just made it impossible to be in the positions that we find ourselves in. Do you think Enneagram number has anything to do with that within your triad? Like, what have you been afraid of in the fear triad? You know, I'm over over here in the <laughs> dependent stance, feeling triad. I'm still trying not to disappoint anybody, so I'm behind. Well, I'd like to hear Teresa's response to what Scott said. And because he shared your feelings about it being hard and not my response. So I thought we'd maybe find something in the middle here. Well, I, I think first and foremost, it's been really helpful for me for him to bring some language to the table it's been very instructional for me because I um, do not accept that I should ever disappoint anybody. Do Just got to have more practice. <laughs> you got to have more practice. <laughs> when he gets older, he'll be a little less disappointing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's been helpful, but that's a very heady cognitive thing. And um, I, it's not very helpful for my heart. And so you think that's because we're in the dependent stance and we just, everything depends on what everybody else thinks and wants and needs. And so somehow we wake up in the morning thinking, we can, we can meet the needs of everybody here and make you happy and make you love us because we just can work hard enough and do that. I'm very other-referencing yeah. um, as a six. And um, I don't know, I think, I don't know, I think it was maybe a year ago I said, I said to Scott, I think I have a preference about this. And he said, that's what we should do then. And I was like, I think this is the first time I've ever given myself permission to even have a preference. Because it was the response to the pandemic for a six has been so incredibly shocking. Like, I cannot believe that as a six, I live in a world where people cannot see that we should be making allowances and be gracious to other people who feel very strongly about things. Because sixes are dutiful and they're loyal and they go to the death. So we've had, it's been, <laughs> was that too dramatic? I realize I haven't had a lot of socialization lately. Zone, You're giving me the look. <laughs> uh, to be totally honest, I zoned out for a second. Okay, so. good. <laughs> Talk you among know, yourselves. I really thought it was going to be the three of you and me, and it's actually just us against them. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> but again, yeah, no, I did. I, it it never occurred to me really to think that I should have a preference for my whole life, and so part of my breakdown was like, 
do you use the F word on this podcast? I mean, <laughs> no, I it's not live. It's, you know, we can. Um, but if you, you really know, wanted to use it, why would you ask permission? That's right. <laughs> that's a good point. I say but, make him do the work. Okay. Well, it was. It, it you was, sound like our waitress last night, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you had a bad waitress. Well, we'll talk about it later. Uh, tomorrow night, your waitress will be excellent. I can the food was delicious. I'm sure other people have been here. What was the name of this joint? <laughs> oh, my God. Have y'all been there lately? Well, we were just discussing it. Yeah, it and you had to work for it, too? You had to earn your food? <laughs> I had to beg for it. Yeah. One of the things that I that is pandemic-related, and on to this conversation besides last night's dinner, I think one of the benefits of me being a seven and in the position I was at, am at at LTM was negotiating and uh, kind of being the in-between of the LTM community and you. Whereas people wanted stuff and you did not want to do certain things. And, and let's be clear, you've been phenomenal. This isn't taking a shot at you, but you, you've said it. You're like, I don't want to do Zooms. I don't want to talk to a camera. I want to talk to people. And it took time to be like, listen, that's not an option. And we need to let people know that we're still here and figuring out a way to still do community. And then on the other end of, you know, all the people bitching and complaining, so you give me a little bit of space there to start saying whatever you want to say. I mean, being like, well, this is also the way it is. And you clicked the, I acknowledge this paragraph button. And next time read it first. And, you know, just not having a, being tied to one side or the other, I thought was very helpful for us. One of the things that happened for us was was he was he could hold a line that I couldn't hold, his objectivity. So when somebody would say to me, you know, you're such a disappointment because for whatever reason, I would want to change the guidelines, right? And he was like, we're not. And he says, you're my mom, and uh, I don't want you and dad to get COVID. And um, so there was all, there's also that, that son looking me in the face and saying, it's not just about what, what you're doing with everybody else, Miss Social, mm-hmm. you know, um, concern. Yeah. Do you guys have to have that? Where, do you have to say to her, I'm saying this as your son? That goes both ways. When, I, when the phone rings and it says Reverend on it, and I always know whenever he's like, I'm, I'm calling as your father. That's not usually good. <laughs> and then on the flip side, I'm calling as your boss. Not usually good either. But so whenever there's a preface, that's tough. The line of communication between uh, the two of them and myself is open enough. They are open enough just kind of in general that you, already, you always know where they stand on things. And so then my job is to give them my opinion about certain things when I disagree, and then when I do agree, convey where they stand to other people. That works for both our professional and personal relationship of, in the relationship, they're, they're still my parents no matter how old I get, and it's here's where we stand on this. And there's enough open dialogue to you know, say, well, you know, I, I disagree with that or whatever, or say I understand and mm-hmm. change sides. I see two support groups in the making. You and me, and those two. <laughs> it's probably harder for you. I'm better. I'm a lot better about um, 
what my limitations are and what my limitations should be. And I am healthier because of therapy and Joe and hard work and a spiritual director and all that. So I think year by year I'm less trapped in being dependent on what other people say or think or how they respond to me and more sure of myself and what's mine to do. I, I made up my mind I was going to try really hard to not scapegoat Joel or Laura. Laura works with us over here. Y'all didn't get to meet her earlier, but we don't get much done without her, and that's her husband Tate with her. And um, the, the story is um, people would come say, we'd love for you to come to so-so, so-and-so and teach us. And I would say, oh, I'd love to talk to Laura because she handles my calendar. And one day, I don't know, several years ago, she said, you know, I, could we just talk about that? Because when you say you'd love to to people that you don't want to go teach at their place or town or community, then you make me tell them no. And that's a whole thing we kind of don't need to do. Like, if you don't want to go, it's okay to say, I'm probably not going to be able to make that work. We'd love to have you come to Richmond or Nashville or wherever. And I didn't even realize how much I did it because my offhanded response is, as a two, was, well, I'd love to. I'd love to. Well, sure, I'd love to. And then I found out how many things I said I'd love to do that I didn't want to do. And then I learned how to say for myself, I, I won't be able to do that. Here's another option. And I think part of what is true for every Enneagram number and certainly for those of us who are in the dependent stance, who are in the positions that we find ourselves in. You don't want to just look at somebody and say, nah, I don't want to go to Lockney, Texas. It's 10 miles from Floyd Ada. If I'm going anywhere, I'm going to Floyd Ada. You know, whatever it is. I think we just don't, we aren't accustomed to saying no to anybody unless it, it involves our integrity. And there's more to be concerned about than just our integrity. We're... I'm older than you are, but we're both getting older, and we both have, you've had a significant illness, and we both have limitations, and we have to honor those. And I'm beginning to feel like when I don't honor mine, I'm not honoring what my number one and the next 18 priorities are, which is Joe and our children and grandchildren. Like, they all want more. And so if I can't say no... I don't want to go to Wichita Falls, then I'm not honoring that. It's just all lip service all the way around. What did that look like uh, personally? If, you know, during that time period, you're putting this on Laura, and, oh, I'd love to get a hold of Laura. What what did that look like personally when you're saying, when people are saying, hey, you know, do you want to do dinner? Do you want to do this? Will you do this? Can you do this? Was it, oh, I'd love to, and then you got stuck doing it, or? Uh, well, no, I used to scapegoat dad. <laughs> I'd love to talk to, talk to Joe. Well, no, I would just say, I'll talk to, I'll talk to Joe. I don't know what his schedule looks like. I'll talk to Joe. I'll talk to Giuseppe. I don't know. I'll talk to Joe. So we, um, within the last three weeks, we just did it again. We sat down with our calendar for the next two months. And, you know, we said, we're going to, we're going to really be more mindful and slow down. And we didn't. So now we've marked out all the dates, and we've been trying to get somebody together with somebody we really love, who I just got an email before we came, 
one of the nights he asked for, I said, Joe, do we have anything on this day? He says, yep, it says children only. And then there's that, well, and we honored it. And then the next one was, well, what about this date? They offered this date. And I asked Joe, and he said, says schedule nothing. That's the only way we get it done, because my answer is, I'd love to. If you're way better than me, lead in slowly. Well, I, you know, I, what I was going to tell you is I think I'm way worse than you because... Oh, good. Well, then go, girl. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think my no's usually even come from a place of integrity. I think my no's come from contrarian six. So if you get my back up, then sometimes I'll say no when I should say yes. But I'm for sure going to say no because you've tripped the six contrarian button and I'm done for. I'm going to be contrary about it. I don't even have that. I don't have that button. I like, I don't have one of those. Where'd you get it? It's a very, very naughty button. <laughs> Ask my girls. <laughs> well, it's to a be very clear, naughty button. you do have a no button. I have purchased it and bought it and gave it to you. Oh, he did. He bought me that button from... Um, uh, office Depot that says no. When I was working on this last book, he said, you're just going to have to hit this over and over and over and over. And I did. It does remind me, though, that my more effective no's have come in partnering, partnering with Peter because I think he has that strong uh, self-preservation instinct, and so he can be very helpful for me in that. As does Scott. I have a question for you for... You ladies. Yes. We were at a workshop recently, and uh, Suzanne was signing books, and a woman came up, and um, this isn't, maybe this is just like a heads up for somebody in the crowd here. You know, signing books is a good time to, like, ask a question or not, but figuring out your anagram number while getting your book signed <laughs> is, that's a tough one. I don't think this is quite the same example of what we're talking about, but Suzanne said, talk to Joel. Joel's right here, and... I was like, yeah, yeah, you bet. So she comes over, and she has some sort of debate about a two or a six. You know, that she starts giving me all the backstory of it. And I told her, I was like, listen, I can give you the bullet points of what each number does, but I would also rather you just buy the road back to you that I'm selling right now, um, and that'll do it better. Or, you know, I, I tried to come up with something on the spot, and what I came up with was, because uh, I told her, I said, hey, listen to the podcasts that have those numbers on it. And listen to who do you sound like when the people are talking. And I was thinking, the twos that I hear on the podcast and talking in general, when they talk about what's important to them relationally, it is with individuals. It's So, for instance, my mom said with all this stuff around the church and her being at First Church, she talks more about the individual members on staff there the individual people in the congregation, how it's affecting our best friend, our good friend Andy, how it's affecting Joe, that are all part of this overlying piece, whereas the sixes are talking about the church. They're talking about the system itself, not the individual pieces in the system. Do you all agree with that? And whatever you have to say also. I totally agree with that. I, t I totally agree that as a six, I'm always thinking of the collective I think the collective is what is going to help us survive. And if we don't figure out how to be a collective, then we're in real trouble. And so I do think like that. And I know you think about, you think about the peeps, right? 
I do because I think any one of the peeps can change the collective. I don't think that's why you do it. That sounds good. Oh, I don't either. Like, I'm, okay. No, I'm, I'm about to confess. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know how to relate to everybody or to think about everybody. Like, I don't know how because it requires not being thinking repressed. <laughs> and see, I'm just feeling and doing and feeling and doing. So I'm not picking up on the minutes from the meeting or what anybody's thinking. I'm picking up on feelings and then doing something about the feelings because that's my way of being in the world. And I can't do that collectively. And so I try to find where the feeling is that might fix a bigger group of feelings, maybe. But I used to, one of, one of the things I'm most ashamed of in all my years of being a pastor's wife, and there are many things that I am ashamed of and some that I should be ashamed of that I'm very proud of. But <laughs> one of the things I'm most ashamed of is it, I, wasn't, I was 37, but a pastor's wife for the first time. And I didn't know that every church had an antagonist. You know, I'd heard about antagonists in the church. We've never been in one that didn't have one. And I used to go after the antagonist. I, would, I figured if I schmooze the antagonist and let them know how wonderful Joe is and how wonderful we are, then I've got this. N- it never worked. I got used every time. And do you think I learned from that? Nope. Just kept right on until I stopped. And I don't. I don't. And I think that that's because that one-on-one picking up on feelings and thinking I could, I can handle that. You think that's like uh, too pride? Coming with the fastballs. Well, you said you were confessing. And <laughs> yes, but I didn't say I needed any help. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, the only re- the only reason I say that is because it's I very think- interesting how fear for the collective sounds so holy, <laughs> right? Like you you got your sin all worked out, so that it's just taking care of God's children. Well, see, and I'm-, I'm schmoozing mean people. <laughs> well, let's well, let's ask the question then: What when fear for the collective is? what you do naturally, then what's missing there? I think you did, unfortunately, Uh, a great job of pointing out the other side of it. So when you have fear for the collective, then your children feel neglected, and they sometimes doubt whether you will be responsible for yourself and take care of yourself so that you can still be a grandmother. Oh, come up with another example, because that happens with twos, too. And I (laughs) think think that sounds pretty bad. (laughs) Think of something that's only in your number. No, I mean, I think that... Yeah, I think that's it. It's other referenced. It's, it's taking it's care of other people. Other, that other reference and and not paying good enough attention to the ones, the individuals, you know, and um, it's it's hurtful. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, I'm I'm ashamed of it as a mother. He's already out here. I feel like this is kind of a Maury opportunity to be like, well, we have your son here today, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> So Scott, come on out, and uh, you could edit the so. first part of me out, and I could re-enter in shocking fashion. But if what? you would just talk enough to get my son to stop talking, we would be really happy. So, 
Y'all had a better situation when I was behind you <laughs> yeah, back there, did. just kind of fading to the back. I'm the one saying, "Come on so, around here." But will will you well, talk to the to your end of that? Tell me, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around the question. She said, "Oh no, he's not." <laughs> is this one of those five ways of uh, buying time? Buying time? It's time. Yeah, by looking out of for the collective, right? Those that suffer, she says, were her kids. Uh huh. So which one do I do? Am I looking out for myself or the collective? Is that the question? Or what does my fear look like? Or now we're talking personal stuff now. Okay. So we're not talking about the collective anymore. This is about mm-hmm. Scott. Yeah. What w- What was it like being, being on the other side of this? Yeah, being my kid. Um, yeah, it, I mean, okay, my mom is a great mom, right? Like, she's, nobody ever did, neither me nor my siblings would say anything different. We loved having you as our mother. We are lucky, right, to have you. Were, are, will be, like, full stop. And... You know, the, the ministry thing and the being pulled to take care of others is a challenge when you're a kid. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, because you, this is something that you don't do anymore, but you had open-ended meetings. You know, a lot of times in the summers when we're home, me and my little brother, um, we'd be home, mom would go out for a morning meeting. We didn't know when she'd be coming back, right? And that can be can be fine depending on the day and it can be scary right and it creates what it ended up creating for me that I didn't realize until much later in life is not so much stuff with mom because that just as you get older you realize it's life is hard and people make choices and it is what it is and, but it was like I resented the ministry for pulling her away from us and that's something that I still don't think I've like I haven't, I feel like you're going to give me a hard time if I say I haven't wrapped my head around it, and you're going to be like, Mr. Five can't wrap his head around something. Um, <laughs> but uh, I haven't resolved it, I guess, is kind of the thing. But so now I'm in it, and it's pulling me at times away from my family, although I think I do a, you know, a decent enough job. But, you know, that's the, that's the thing where you start to feel like, you know, am I becoming my mom? You know, <laughs> the, the age-old question that every young, that every, you know, growing boy has asked, am I becoming my mom? Does that answer your question? I'm, it was his, was it your question? It was all of our question. It was a collective question. So, another follow-up question. So, you said you are, you know, now you are the parent in ministry. What are some of the things that you're consciously... Uh, maybe as an Enneagram 5 and just as learning from your parents who are in ministry doing different? Well, I'll give you a concrete example. Um, So we've, you know, my daughter's four, so she's not in uh, school. And um, so figuring out childcare during the pandemic was a, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to break the seal. It was a fucking nightmare. (laughs) And... What we tried to do for a long time was, it doesn't matter what we tried to do. We tried a bunch of different child care mm-hmm. things. We tried to hire people for cert, you know, certain hours a week and so on, and, and they would become unreliable. And um, we had Tammy's daughter last summer, which was amazing while it lasted, but it just wasn't long enough. 
And um, for the podcast listeners, Tammy is somebody who's in the room here tonight. That's what we were looking for a drink earlier. That's the only reason why I know who yeah. Tammy was. This and um, so anyway, and Tammy has a wonderful daughter who watched my daughter. But what this means is we have like large gaps of time during the day where we don't have childcare. My wife also works and so on and so on and so on. And so I have tried to set up my schedule so that I work very early in the morning and then as far into the night as I need to uh, so that I can be with her during the day when she's not in preschool. Um, Because I was like, I don't want to miss this time. It's going to be gone soon. I don't want to have regrets about not having time together. And this sounds lovey-dovey. A lot of days, like, I'm pulling my hair out, and it is, like, a terrific mess. Uh, But that was why I made that decision. It's like, it's really important to me to try to be there as much as I can. And I'm not there. I mean, even when I'm present, I'm not present enough. As I mean, I think we many people feel that way. But... um, that's one of the things that I've tried to do. I don't think she's going to be able to say there wasn't enough time. She might say, I don't like how we used our time together, right? Yeah. But Well, and she did kick you out of the house today because she thought she had too much time with you. Yeah. So there is yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering um, how we're going to talk about all of this five years from now. I'm wondering if my grandchildren are going to say, remember when we got to stay home and it was so great? Or if they're going to say, oh, I was so glad when we got to go back to school. Or, you know, like I wonder how we're all going to talk about it. It's so unprecedented. We didn't, you can't read about it. You can't, you know, we just don't know. I think we have no idea how we're going to view this time. What was your your number one gift and number one problem during the last two years of having a one Wife or husband? What number one gift did they bring and what number one problem? Well, some of you know, but a lot of you don't know that I've been really sick. And he's been perfect. And um, I cannot think of a single problem. I mean, I'm really trying hard. I can't think. I think maybe yesterday he told me what kind of coat to wear outside. That's the worst it got. <laughs> I don't like it when he acts like Andrew Frieden, which is our which is our weatherman here, and he always tells us in the morning what clothes we should wear for the day, and I think Andrew should just stick to the weather forecast. <laughs> so when Pete does that, I get a little upset. But honestly, um, honestly, it's... It's been great because he's been calm and um, clear and um, flexible. I know, shocking, but very um, flexible during this time to um, end his work in order to... uh, co-grandparent with the grandkids during the time and um, has just been fully present for every stinking Zoom meeting we've ever had without single complaint and that's been really helpful but I can't think of any problems right now 
Live it up. Yeah. This isn't going to last forever, but it's so sweet right now, isn't it? Whitney stepped up her doing. Like, she went full on, redid the whole, redid both of our bathrooms, like, by herself except for me doing the lifting of painting, pulling out the vanities. I mean, complete overhaul. And that was fantastic. Same with the kitchen. And then that paid off. We sold our house this past week, so hooray. But uh, she did that, you know, a year ago. And so that was definitely a positive of Anagram One spouse. With that, her expectations of all of us rose, though, to very specific things and ways to, to do things. And especially with um, the reason why we're moving, we have sometimes four kids uh, during the pandemic that the least we had was kind of three. And it's a small house. You know, if you weren't kind of behaving the way that we were saying, listen, especially if there had been a good week. If there was a good week, then it's like, all right, we, that's how it needs to be. And she'd get pretty touchy and then need to need to go away and go on walks. And that's, that was always hard for me to uh, keep up with that. And I don't know... I don't, don't know if this was a positive or negative, and I wish she was here to talk about it. She said that her subtype changed when the pandemic hit, um, and that she felt like she went from uh, social to sexual. And that's probably, I'm talking about the expectations, like that's probably kind of a part of it that that, that ramped up is my guess. I think probably the opposite in some ways, like the doing really dropped. Um, and that, I mean, the reasons for that are complicated because my wife also started her own business that ended up kind of really taking off in ways that were really unexpected and really, really good for us. So it's hard to say that because I felt like the doing that she did was in the area that we most needed. And so it's sort of like pluses and minuses. And then the gift, um, you know, I feel like it's hard. Like I'm thinking in some ways it doesn't even feel like the pandemic is over. I'm trying to remember what time period encompasses the pandemic, and I'm getting very literal here. But, like, I think over the last couple years um, we have – made a lot more conscious efforts to connect, right? Particularly at the end of the day. So early in the pandemic certainly was like, we're getting together at the end of the day to veg and watch TV and do nothing and say nothing and then go to bed. And that becomes a habit and a routine. And then all of a sudden it's just like, it just sort of spirals out of control. So that's all you're doing. And you feel like your life is just passing you by. And so I think that, she was very vocal about needing to get out of that and do other things. And so we've been able to do that. And it, it, I feel like our relationship is in a completely transformed place than where it was at the beginning of the pandemic. But the thing is, it didn't feel like it took much to do that. You know, it was just like being a little intentional and not even, we still watch Survivor, right? And go and do Survivor. We watched all 37 seasons of Survivor that were available <laughs> during the pandemic. So don't judge me. You stop that. <laughs> Lauren Tater with you, they did too. Oh, Laura did too. 
tell you that end of the day recap and kind of talking about your day is a big disconnect between Whitney and I. I don't, you know, what are you doing? And I, I've, I did not handle that question well for a period of time. Uh, what are you doing? I'm, I'm working. Like, what, what are you doing? That's not a good response. <laughs> and and be, because we're both working from home, though, that's what, I'm on a computer. Like, this isn't, I don't have a tale to give you. I'm answering emails. Dumb question. So, next. I, I, that was my attitude. But not dumb, just not unnecessary. And my day is boring. Like, I'll, t- I'll let you know when there's a, something to tell you. Therefore, I don't ask that question. And she does want to tell me about her day. Uh, tell me about the meetings. There's no something, that disconnect of sharing what she did during the day, no matter how mundane it is, is a part of the connection for her. And that was a big thing that I got to learn over two and a half years, slowly. Um, but what got me thinking about it was when you talked about becoming more connected, because we started probably about seven months ago, couples therapy also. Not also, we were working on things and added couples therapy. And, uh, and that's been gangbusters for us. And part of it has been stuff like that of just me saying, you know, giving her an honest answer. I'm answering emails. After this, I'm going to edit a podcast. After that, I'm going to correct this product on the website. And, you know, then that, and by, by giving the answer, you stop asking the question too. It's like that. <laughs> awesome. Can't wait to hear about this tomorrow. So, this is for the two of you. What do you think it's like? Well, not what do you think it's like? What is it like for you to um, be married to someone who verbally processes and work with your mothers who verbally process? There, people in the room are moaning for you. (laughs) (laughs) People are going, "Mm." That's another thing the pandemic kind of helped with, of just, you know, because you drowned in it. Verbally processing when you get to the mic center, verbally processing when you get home, and where are you going to go? It's a pandemic. So letting you both, Suzanne and Whitney, just letting you do it. Like, what? You don't even have to be really dialed in. So uh, don't. Don't look at me. So, but no, it's not staring off into space. I think you don't judge me, like he said there. Like, it's not staring off into space and going, mm hmm, mm hmm, that's beautiful, mm hmm. It's just what I learned is most of the time, a high percentage of the time, you're not looking for anything back from me. As long as I'm there, like, yeah, and pay attention. Like, I'm, if it was a tough thing, that's tough. And if it was a good thing, that's really cool. And then, I wish and, I hadn't asked this question. Unless, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So, we'll, okay. we'll stop yeah. before Scott answers. And you don't have to move into the life I'm moving into. But whereas before, I'll do better, I promise. Whereas before, you know, man, this awful thing happened today. Hey, well, here's what you can do for that to not happen again. Or here's something to, here's what I would do. Did you think about doing this? That's not what she's looking for. That's not what you're looking for. Yeah. So it's just learning to adjust my response to the verbally, verbal processing. Try to do a little better. <laughs> We're in the we're in the trust tree in the nest. We're you know, being honest about <laughs> this. It's a here. safe place. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, the obvious thing is that it's a challenge, right? Um, and so the question is then, like, what am I going to do about it? You know, for I'm us, good. it's like scheduling time to let her do that. 
right? And oh, and not so <laughs> I'm not scheduling. Calendar, <laughs> calendar day. It's a now the three of us need to look at your calendar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and not. I don't mean scheduling. I mean setting aside intentional intentional time to just chat about whatever comes up with no agenda, right? So like we have a, uh, you know, in theory. Again, I'm not good at this, but like having a meeting that's a no agenda meeting, right? So from a work standpoint, you can get very logistical about these kinds of things. So that way I can sort of prepare my morning, you know, knowing like, okay, I'm going to be doing that for a while. So I need to make sure that like I'm at the top of my game, right? That I'm going in with some energy and not going in sucking the energy out of the room by scrolling, death scrolling or whatever, you know, while she's talking to me, you know, like Joel does. With my wife, it's different because, you know, so we, we both work at home, and so sometimes we're in adjacent offices, and she'll be really excited about something and bounce in, you know, and I'll be in the middle of something, and she'll be 90 miles an hour before, I, you know, without asking a question, you know, which to me is a sin. So I have to, like, sort of practice a couple of things, either being flexible depending on the moment, or just saying, hey, I would love to hear about this, right? Can, I'm actually kind of in the middle of something that I'm, I'm needing to focus on. Could we return to this later? And she totally gets that, um, so that works. So it's kind of learning a little bit of, like, where do I create the space for this and how do I get the other person to sort of be on board with that? But ultimately, people, you know, she wants to talk to me about these things and yep. she wants me to hear it. So yep. it's important to her. Like if that means waiting a little bit, that's fine. We're going to, we're going to meet our goal. You know, yeah. you have an, an advantage over me in that. Cause I can't think without verbally processing. So if I'm not saying it out loud, I'm, I'm not getting anywhere. I just have the I'm I start here. And if I can't verbally process it because that's what adds thinking for me, then I just stay here. And I've tried journaling to do it. Doesn't work. I've tried talking in the mirror, doesn't work. Like, it has to be a human. And so God gave me a nine who only listens to part of it anyway. <laughs> and I get better while he thinks about something else. <laughs> it's really hard for me. Yeah, I think it is hard. You know, um, I think maybe that's one of the overall gifts of the pandemic for me has been um, that I have really had to consciously um, take a little bit more responsibility and authority for my own thoughts without always needing to bounce them off because the problem for a six, in my opinion, is that when we're so other-referenced, we're always going around asking for other people's opinion, and they think that we are actually asking for their opinion. And in my, and, and, and you know, a lot of times I am, but in addition to that, what I'm really asking for is a six, and I think this is quite important if you love a six to know, what I'm really at, looking for is I'm testing to see what I've missed because I have so much self-doubt. So what I'm really going after is here's what I'm thinking, and so it would have been, it's, it would have been smarter for me rather than to just ask an open-ended question or what's your opinion to say, here's what I've done, again, verbal processing, but with a purpose, I'm wondering if I've missed something. Because I think that's very confusing 
for me to go and ask Peter's opinion about something, and he gives it, and I'm not even really paying attention to what he's saying. Because once I find out that what he's saying, and he says sometimes I take a tone. I know. They, Joe says I have a tone. I know. I don't know about that. but it's Con- just Confirmed. You have a tone. <laughs> um, so, so can I good. jump in on that, too? Yeah. So Because yeah. I, I think this ties back to you saying earlier, like, owning your own thoughts and preferences and things like that. I think you said something to that effect. Um, so one of the things that used to happen between us that you can analyze to your heart's content uh, is she would, we'd be having a conversation about some decision we have to make. And um, I'd say, well, what do you want to do? Well, I don't have a preference. I don't care. And then I would say, okay, well, I think we should do it like this. And she'd be tell me all the reasons why that wasn't going to work, right? And then ultimately that was about her trying to get me on board with whatever her unstated opinion was. But so one of the big gifts, I think, of the pandemic of, I don't know, I, I don't know what the words are, but, you know, your journey, I don't know. But owning your preferences has been a great thing for me. Because I want to know what they are, you know, because they do matter. So one of the huge things that's been a problem for us working together is, I, so I'm a dismissive person. Just, yeah, I know, you're not surprised. Uh, guilty as charged, right? So that's a problem, owned. And in addition, I think that she has often felt like I'm more dismissive than I am because she hasn't stated preferences, And I want to know what they are and take them into consideration, and so often they haven't come. So then it just feels like, to her, her experience of that has been, I I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth because we've talked this through quite a few times, is that you feel steamrolled, right? Right. And it's been lovely to actually hear your wants and needs and those kinds of things so that we can take those into account together. Right. So I think that's been a real uh, area, edge of growth, or six in particular, is to say, wait a minute, take take responsibility for yourself. Just own it. Just take responsibility for yourself. That self-doubt thing for a six is so huge, though, um, and the fear that comes from making a mistake or what if that, you know, that future focus of what if I do this wrong or what if, what if I've missed something is such a problem. But I, in... In trying to avoid one problem, I created three more problems. And so I think that's the other thing that I've really learned as a six during the pandemic, off, also with that strong social thing. I didn't have all that social stuff around me, so I actually got to know myself to take responsibility for my preferences. So that conversation that we would have when I would say I don't have a preference I was telling the truth. I did not have a preference. I would work into it. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't know my preference till I verbally process myself right. to get there. Right, so he would have to say something, and then I would have to think of all the things, you know, that, right. Right. that forecasting right. for a six. So I'd have to think of all the reasons that wouldn't work in order to get to the place where I could even agree with him. Mm-hmm. And that was super frustrating. Right, because I just told him there were no preferences, and so he could say that. Then, if I don't have any preferences, How why the hell are you asking all these questions? To yeah. Right, so that support yeah. a preference. That's been a big gift from the Enneagram in my relationship with you, with any one, two, or six, is learning and knowing to just give you a heads up about a conversation. Mm-hmm. I'll say, hey, I, I want to talk about this, 
and maybe we can talk about it Wednesday when we're recording or uh, Saturday at the event or whatever. So I know we need to get to Q&A, but I want to do two things first with you. Uh, Where were you on the continuum from phobic to counterphobic at the beginning of COVID, whatever that beginning is, and where are you now? If zero is phobic and 10 is counterphobic. I heard your conversation, your podcast with the six Mm -hmm. that talked about, um, I think she said that she was a sexual six and that she was towards the, oh, sorry, um, really towards that counterphobic end. That was a really great podcast, by the way. Um, And it, it made me really think about where I am on the continuum. And um, I think I have moved back from counterphobic uh, more towards the middle, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um because I've just made a lot of peace with a lot of stuff. Yep. And my second question is, you keep talking about the social stuff. Mm-hmm. And that would, I, I'm guessing people who know subtypes are hearing that you are a social dominant subtype, or were. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Is that mm-hmm. what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. And what was next, later? Um, what so are you now, and what has changed? Is so I think the, the, well, I think I was, you know, you probably don't remember this, but one of my boot camps when I, you know, I, I, we came to you, and we were all, we were all different numbers than we ended up being after we got mm-hmm. to you. You remember I came up to you one time and said, "I really need a big hug because I came here as a three, and now I realize I'm a six. Um, and <laughs> it was this, a shining moment for me. <laughs> it is really upsetting. And you were actually uh, teaching on subtypes because I could not resonate with any of the three subtypes. Yep. So I've never been very clear about what my subtypes were, mm-hmm. but now I'm pretty clear. I, I think it's social is my, in, in your stacking, mm-hmm. is, is my really thick mm-hmm. layer. Sexual is second. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea really how repressed my self-preservation yeah. was. Yeah. I'm convinced that during uh, the last two years, subtypes have changed for lots of people, whether we know it or don't know it yet. I think there's been a change, and I'm kind of trying to feel my way through different groups that we work with to find out if that's true. And I I wouldn't have even known that subtypes change, except that I was always social, sexual, and then self-preserving. And Joe, I was teaching in Austin. Joe had a heart attack. And my girls were with me, and Joey came straight from the back all the way up to me on stage and said, we have to go. Dad's had a heart attack. And we just walked out of the room, started driving from Austin to Dallas. And on the way, my subtype changed. And I had never heard anybody write about that, talk about that, never heard anything about it. So then it was such a dramatic change for me to go from a social subtype to a sexual subtype. I was driving him crazy. So we, we've had a therapist for 18 years, but we went to talk about that because the change was so dramatic. And I think... Um, I think that change is occurring, and I've said for a long time that when I used to do uh, one-on-one work with uh, business partners or couples, uh, or even in families, when, not when, subtype difference is much more significant in an intimate relationship of any kind than Enneagram number difference. It's a big, big, big difference. And so if I'm right, 
and subtypes are changing for people because of and as a result of the pandemic, then there's going to be unexplained discomfort in relationships that people don't have language for yet because it, it kind of doesn't occur to folks to say, oh, I, I think maybe my subtype has changed. It, like it doesn't happen. And I, I, Joe and I, neither one have very much self-preserving, and then that's a whole set of its own basket of problems right. when you're our age, right? right? It's tricky. Well, you know, in your free time, when you're going around the country studying people, one yeah. of the things that I'm really curious about in terms of thinking about um, instincts and thinking about how they play out, I'm wondering if different approaches to the pandemic could be related to people's instinct stack. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? And that it could be even surprising how that looks. Yes, and it could answer some of what divides us if we had a greater Enneagram literacy across the culture. Yes, because then we could have conversations not about like um, with all this judgment wrapped around it, but instead we could have conversations like, I really, man, I understand why my self-preservation instinct is so leaning this way, right? That takes all the judgment out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I would... I'm hoping that that will be a happening so thing. Yeah, I'm hopeful. I'm going to hold the microphone so people can come here for Q&A. Oh, gosh, where to begin? Um, one thing I've really noticed, Suzanne, you give us all clues about if you are this number, this is what you can do. Like, for instance, I know you've said, I think it's the aggressive stance, three, seven, eight, you say you should get involved in something that you can't fix. So it would be, you know working in a homeless shelter or any of these things. Um, If you have a chance, I know on nines you say, make a decision, you know. And I get that, but it's like, that's not an action item so much, like a homeless shelter or something you really, you are doing something. Just making a decision, it's like, okay, I like blue. You know, it doesn't feel like I can get my hands in it, which is maybe my withdrawing stance, like, "Mm, I can't, you know. And along those lines, I'm so interested that a five is doing recovery counseling because that is really doing what you say. That's like, a, you know, that to me, a five is not, uh, my son is a five who's in physical, he's a physical therapist. And he laughs because he took quizzes and he's like 0% compassion. <laughs> That's what we call it. Don't any of that. No feelings. No feelings, but they, he, like you, have picked careers that you, you can't fix, and you are fix-it people or, or forget it, and that, to me, is so very interesting. So any comment along the lines of what we actually do to help us get out of our, our patterns? Thank you. Before you answer that from your perspective, the only thing I would say is that Part of what I'm, I'm trying to say <clears throat> when I say do something is I'm, I'm saying make a decision. You can change your mind later. Decide. Decide you're going to move to New York or you're not. Decide that you're going to quit your job or you're not. 
And you can change your mind, but you don't get to just say, oh, I don't know, it could be this, it could be this. Like, don't do that. And I think it has to do with the same kinds of things that you're talking about in terms of, for them, it's not fear, but it is, for nines, great concern about conflict. And as long as you're on the fence, not doing and not deciding, then unless somebody has grown very impatient with your not doing and not deciding, then it's not conflictual. And you get to just ride the wave until you can't ride it anymore. I think a good question for all of us to ask, you know, maybe once a week is, what am I avoiding? Like, what am, what am I avoiding? And sometimes it's uh, just like a very mundane thing, cooking. I'm tired of cooking, so I'm avoiding cooking. And sometimes it's I'm avoiding making a decision about whether or not I'm going to write another book. Uh, like, it, it's... Um, and I, I'm sad to say that I think the pandemic, for those numbers that are kind of, you know, low and slow moving on the back burner, you just got permission to do that. It's like, I don't have to decide. Who knows when I'm going to need to decide about this. And that's not, not going to be advantageous long term, I don't think. On the part about fives and compassion, um, I, I get what you're saying, like 100%. And I have feelings, and they're quite large. And that doesn't mean I'm going to show them to you, though, right? And I have a lot of compassion, but that doesn't mean I'm just going to do what you ask. <laughs> and um, those are hard things for different types of people to get sometimes. And I personally think that counseling is a perfect profession for a five because I get to listen. That's my job, right? And my job is not to solve your problem, and I don't even want to. And and empathy is a skill. Uh, We tend to think that empathy is something that some people are more empathetic than others or whatever, but it's a skill, and you can learn it. And that was part of the beauty of going through the program that I went through is I was able to learn that, so I'm better at showing that to people now. So um, our family of four, three, eight, son who's a seven, and a daughter who's a four. Oh, my. So you have three of us in the very aggressive stance that work really well together and can kind of, I don't know, bounce off one another and, and, and all of that. But for... Two of us that are three and an eight, I would love to hear your guidance on dealing with, not dealing with, better communicating with, better being there, better parenting for the four and how to, how to do that. Because I don't know if it's something we've struggled with, but it's something we definitely think and talk about a lot and how we can show up for her. I'm sorry, I was snapping a picture. Did you call it the very aggressive stance? <laughs> I don't think we get to put adjectives in front of the... The stance is. <laughs> I was like, did she just say in the very aggressive stance? I thought you were going to talk from the very aggressive stance about parenting a four. I have no answers for parenting a four. I only have things that I've learned. Um, one of the, we think that our oldest is a four, and we 
have learned we hold them all loosely. You know, if, if it ends up that they're not, then no skin off our teeth. It's just we're trying out different things. And uh, the thing that was hardest for me is because she's the child in our mixed family that neither one of us are the biological parent of. So we've got no control over when we get to see her, et cetera. And so whenever I, as a seven, got to be with her, I wanted just all, let's have all the fun, let's do all the stuff, let's just really enjoy life together and this time together. And she's 12 now, so pick any age. She's a six-year-old four. She's an eight-year-old four, a 10-year-old four. That's not how she thinks. It's not how she does life. Um, and I would just continually chase after her. And that would never, ever work well for me. And then um, finally, you know, as we started working on it, thinking about it, trying to come up with things, I stopped chasing. When she would get to our house and withdraw, we let her withdraw. And if she comes out, she does. And if she doesn't, she doesn't. But nine times out of ten, it could have been one minute later, maybe 20 minutes later. She comes out, and she's thrilled to, to join. But it's on her own terms. We think that our son, Jace, could be a four, and he's eight, uh, and he's from Whitney's previous marriage. And I just thought of this right now just because this is the hardest relationship kid-wise for me of the four, of the four children. you got to treat him like the pandemic. You just don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> like, it is just be, be prepared, do your best, and if it's a lockdown or if you have to leave or if people are crying or if people are laughing, whatever, that you just, yeah, it is... <laughs> You didn't hear him. He said shelter in place, yeah, which sorry. is perfect. Yeah, having an expectation of what the day is going to look like or the next five minutes with him is a mistake just because you don't know. And so as we have let go of those expectations and tried to give him some good, solid, and consistent rules and boundaries, then from there it's just now love him as best you can. And that's, that's just difficult. Uh, but it's it's much much better, you know. When we first when I first met him, you know he and we introduced the kids and he's uh, he also has ADD and some impulse stuff and like he's screaming at Jolie and they're what three years old he was three she was four or five you know he's screaming at her. I'm like what in the hell is this and I was like that is not how we're going to be doing things and the myth of control with an anagram four as a child is just the biggest myth that there is. How y'all feeling? Better and better by the minute, right? Our oldest grandchild is 16, and he's a four. And he says that the best thing Joey and Billy did for him is start saying to him, we're not going to try to make you happy. We're just going to let you be in this mood. People trying to make them happy is not helpful because they don't want to be happy number one, and number two, they're not unhappy. They're not unhappy. You're unhappy. They're not unhappy. They are whatever word they give it at the moment. They're the most complex number on the Enneagram. There are fewer fours than any other number. You know, the tendency for people is to think about the three aggressive numbers and how difficult this must be for them. 
My thing is, how difficult do you think it is for the four to be with the three of you? Can't be a piece of cake. Just one quick story about Will. So Will is the grandchild where the Enneagram saved our relationship. We, we were, have always been really close. He was the first one born. I was without children and really purpose in life. So, hey, let's hang out. Uh, so, All true. Yeah. All true. So we had a... We formed a great relationship and great bond, and uh, one. And then year, Joel grew up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Will grew up first, I think. But uh, we started this thing. There was one. I don't remember what. Uh, he was having a hard time at school, and my sister was like, "Hey, will you come pick him up?" And and uh, so I showed up and in dressed up as Thor, and I had an Iron Man costume for him, and we wore those out to eat and to go see the very first Avengers movie. This was ten years, a decade ago. And then we did for eight years on that weekend, um, we had bros night and we did something new and something new. Well, year two, I took my tax return and we just took it straight to uh, a tuxedo shop, got fitted for tuxedos and wore them out the door and went out on the town. Well, driving down just the 10 miles maybe on a highway from where we were in Richardson to, to downtown Dallas. He cried, he laughed, he slept, he got angry, like he, the entire roller coaster of stuff. Range of emotions. And when, and the, one of the first things was the crying, and I don't even remember what it was about, and it was about nothing, but if it wasn't for the anteogram, you know, that, that's where I catch myself with Jace, where it's like, what, we're in tuxedo, like what in the world is there to be unhappy about? But it was like, just, just give it a minute, and it, you know, the wind will change. Should turn that into a T-shirt. We're wearing tuxedos. What could possibly be the matter? Well, this timing is hilarious. I'm a four, so I was sitting. <laughs> I was sitting back there. Um, I'm a self-preservation four, and Suzanne, that's what my question is going to be about. I was just going to say, as a kid, one of the best gifts I had an eight grandfather, and one of the best gifts was him not getting emotionally rocked by my emotions. So I actually think aggressive numbers have a great gift to offer fours. And that is that if you can, it's almost like a codependency thing um, that I've often experienced. And those are the most destabilizing relationships. So you guys have a great gift. I just have to say, long term. And I'm also absolutely convinced that God is, in whatever way God does things, I don't know. There are a lot, a lot, a lot of mm -hmm. Enneagram 8, 7, and 8 parents who have four children, children who are fours, I mm -hmm. mean to say. <laughs> so I, evidently everybody's learning. So Suzanne, my question is, I have been a self-preservation for, I recognize it showing up by age 12. And so it was in place before the pandemic. And to be quite honest, it's been very hard to watch. I would say most of my family are not self-preservation. I have a five brother who I love, who's definitely self-preservation five. Um, and, but I have just watched a lot of people not know what to do with that. I think I've heard you talk on the podcast before about a lot of people were thrown into the pandemic without that being a dominant subtype, and they didn't know really how to adjust to it. And I'm finding, just being very honest, I'm finding myself getting impatient as a self-preservation for which a lot of the myth I grew up with was people will love me if I can endure through things. And a lot of the pandemic has been about enduring frustration and disappointment. 
And so there's kind of two questions there. One is, I'd be curious to hear how you guys have done with self-preservation and stuff. And then the second one is how to have patience as kind of this strange number that's very used to enduring, if that makes sense. I'm going to start with the second one uh, and then come back to the first one. I think there is uh, an expectation for other Enneagram numbers for all eight other Enneagram numbers to be uh, kind of seen and heard and understood at least half the time. Fours have never had that, never felt seen half the time, certainly never felt heard half the time, nor understood. And... um, A number of fours have said to me, it's fascinating to me to watch people try to live in my world. And they're really not good at it. And I'm, and you were very gracious. A lot of fours are saying to me, I'm really tired of the whining. You know, I can't be with who I want to be with. I can't go where I want to go. People don't understand why I'm making the choices I'm making. Those are things you've lived with your entire life. And so it's like, really? Y'all need to buck up and do do a lot better. I I think your voice now is for asking questions and not making judgment. So, and, and not asking questions that sound like, what do you think it's like to be me? Or is there a specific thing you're struggling with? And then you might be able to ask another question that represents something that you've learned from being a four. We have all been on the other side looking in, and that's where you've spent a great deal of life, on the other side looking in. And so I think what you have to offer now, if you can find ways to do it, and you're doing it by asking the question so I get to talk about it, is you, you have a, a way of saying, I've learned how to not be one more than one-ninth of anything. A lot of numbers are, are not aware of ever being just one-ninth. Your expectations are completely different from the other eight numbers. And your belief that they're going to be met is a much lower percentage than the other numbers. And so that has made this a time with less discomfort even though there's more impatience. And so, um, like, I don't know, you might want to start a blog of lessons of being on the outside looking in instead of naming it foreness. Lessons of being, uh, of experiencing limitations that other people weren't experiencing or lessons, you know, what, whatever language works for you that says, here's the, here's the five great things I know because I'm a four, but you're just not going to use that language. Because we don't hear from four as much because your perception is that we don't want to hear from you or that we don't have time to hear from you or that we don't have the patience to hear from you. So it's also an interesting time for you to be on the other side of that, right, and not have the patience for us. It's a, like, it, everything teaches both ways. So there's no escaping that. So then part of it becomes, here's what I've learned, and here's what I think I have to offer. 
And in terms of being self-preserving, it means that you'll have to identify your layers. Self-preserving 50% is social 30% is sexual 20%, you know, like whatever that is. Because you have to speak from those different layers in order to be understood based on what you're trying to say, whether you're talking to one other person or uh, a group of people or a friend group or whatever. And, and my guess is that because you're experiencing everybody being where you've felt, that your percentages will change. If they're not changing, that they, they are changing. And my guess is, and this is just a guess, it's not even an educated guess probably, but my guess would be that you're becoming less self-preserving, more sexual, and about the same social. And if that's not, that may not be true, don't wear it if it isn't. Because what's happening for a, a lot of fours is that they feel like they have a place to stand now. And so they're living more into one-on-one -on -one relationships, which is sexual instead of one with many, which is social. I don't know if that even helps or answered your question or whatever, but I hope it did. And I, I, um, I don't want anybody in the room or who hears this to take this wrong because that would be, that would be um, a, a real distance from my intention. I work very hard to say that not all fours are in art forms, meaning they're not all poets, dancers, artists, writers, all that. And um, I, I think any kind of communication that's very direct and not dressed up, not poetic, not with a butterfly on top, and I don't mean for that to be, I'm not trying to be, you know, it, whatever that, is I don't want to be that. Um, I think just good direct talk from fours is hard to get. And I think we can all benefit from it all the time, and especially right now. Hi. Um, so I am a nine, and my fiancé is a three. And so we're both on the central triangle, and I'm very past-oriented, and she's very, very future-oriented. So my question is, what can we do to, you know, kind of meet each other in the middle or meet each other where they're at so that we can prevent miscommunication? I just wrote this email two days ago to two people who I care about a lot. And her orientation is the past, and his is the future, and they're at a crossroads in life, not necessarily in their relationship, but of course it affects all of it. And I, I figured this out by working um, with, in the United Methodist Church, our polity includes district superintendents who are over a bunch of churches. And our bishop, that's kind of his group that he works, or she works stuff out with, and they appoint pastors. And pastors have Enneagram numbers and churches have Enneagram numbers. And I've been suggesting for a while that you can't appoint a pastor with a future orientation to a church with an orientation to the past unless you appoint a person whose orientation to time is the present moment to be the bridge between the two. And that 
I'm getting some feedback that that has proven by some district superintendents to work and to be helpful. And so I said to these friends, I'm glad you're away on vacation. I know that life is crazy for you right now at this crossroads. And the best thing you can do is each give up your comfort space from the future and from the past and meet in the present into what's right now, what, what is happening today. And tomorrow will be today, right? And that um, allows for your relationship to be real in real time. And you can make decisions about what you want to bring from the past and what you want to dream for for the future. But all you have is right now, and you don't want to miss that. And you really don't want to miss that when you're deeply in love and life is before you and you have all these things to dream about and make plans about. It's like um, you, can't, you cannot leave your orientation to time because you can, your anagram number never changes. So it's like you're marrying me and my family and my orientation to time. <laughs> and we're, we're all part of the deal. And so how are we going to do this? And, you know, you have to spend holidays with my family, but you don't have to spend every holiday with my orientation of time. Sometimes we can spend holidays with your orientation of time. You can't change it because it's part of how you see. But you can both make an effort to meet just what, what shall we do today, just today. Another thing I would suggest is that uh, you listen to Laura tell a story that I'm going to ask her to tell because it's one of my very favorites about Laura's a three and her husband Tate is a five and she just has the best orientation of time story ever it's nice to meet you uh I was actually (laughs) I was actually thinking what Tate and I have done because we've had to work through all of this orientation of time stuff as well as when you talk about Suzanne that twos don't have intuitive access to thinking, right? And you always say, I have to pack a bag and, and go. And Joel used that same language about feelings. I got to pack a bag and go to feelings. And I think Tate and I, without knowing it, have started using that language where I'll say, can we please talk about the future? And it's like, hey, can you pack a bag and come meet me up here? Because I need to know, like, we're a one-car family. I need to know, I got to be at work at this time. And when do you need the car? And do you have your doctor? We got to talk about tomorrow. And then we'll well, you already have your backpack. Can we also talk about the next 10 years? That'd be really great. So even just to recognize, like, to know that her orientation is different. And so can you come and meet me where I am? And he, mostly I can just think of times that I've asked him to think about the future. I'm not sure how much I pack a bag and go to the past, but I try to. So even just being aware of that and saying, we're going to talk about something that's uncomfortable, that's not your normal the awareness even has been really helpful for us. You still have to tell the great story. I love it so much. This was five years ago, you think? Probably five, three, five years ago, when I had just started learning about, I don't know, it was in the past. It was way long time ago. <laughs> I don't know. We had just started talking about orientation at the time, and I was hearing a lot about it, and it was the first time that I was aware of how future-oriented I was. And I started to notice that every time I started a sentence, began a conversation, had something to say, it was always in the future. I was never asking questions about how did worship go this morning? Tell me about your fifth birthday. I mean, it was always just 
What are you going to do tomorrow as we're going to something? What's happening after this? And so we were eating dinner somewhere. Uh, and I started thinking, like, I, I know that I should be aware that there are other orientations, that there is a present moment, that there was a past that's relevant, I guess. And and so <laughs> that's because my teaching is so great. So good. She hears it over you and over and over, and she somewhere. says, I, I guess it's right. I guess there's a past. So I said to Tate, what are you looking forward to this week as we're eating cheeseburgers? And he, you know, okay. So, you know, keep eating our cheeseburgers. And he said, what, what was the best thing that you did this weekend? And I, I don't know. We had, we had gone to a different city to celebrate my birthday, a concert I had been really excited about, but it had already happened. And I just, so then I thought, like, maybe we could meet in the present. And it was so new to me that I didn't even understand language around present moment. What does that, I don't even, what does that even mean to talk about the present? And so I just said, how's your cheeseburger? <laughs> and so I think to even recognize that we talk about sometimes that as you learn Enneagram that it's awkward. And so even to recognize that orientation of time as you start to, get embarrassed by how much you're talking about the future or the past, and then to start to realize that, orient that future, present, can be more than just those shakes are amazing that they make right here, but also, and there's big things happening in the world and current relationship. It turns out there's a ton that you can talk about in the present that I was not aware of. Yeah. It's just a decision. It, some things are just a decision. It's like Scott saying, you can teach empathy, and some things are just a decision. And you're, you're never, ever going to be oriented to the future. You're never going to be. And she's never going to be oriented to the past. So you got to give up on that and decide that there will be times when you can meet in the middle and then celebrate that you've got both covered. We went to Cape Cod for our honeymoon. It was beautiful. There's a, the most romantic sunset in the continental U.S. or something like that, you know, whatever. So we go to it. We've been married for uh, four days or something. Didn't know the Enneagram. That good, huh? It was great. great. <laughs> it was cloudy. It was a very cloudy sunset. But I said the most romantic thing I had to offer at the world's most romantic spot, which was, it's so embarrassing. We should use this time to set some one, three, and five-year goals for our marriage. <laughs> And then he grooms just true. It's just true. It's what else a great can offer. It didn't go yeah. well. My orientation to time is the present, and Joe's orientation to time is the past, and we have never had any goals. <laughs> Joel and Laura keep coming to us saying, could we like have a one-year plan? Like they used to start with a 10-year plan. Now they just want a one-year plan. So I'm 99% sure I'm a six. The 1% is probably my leftover self-doubt. Self um, but for a long time, the whole... Am I a two? Am I a six? And type of stuff. And um, I'm going to try to articulate what I'm trying to say. But um, w when you were talking about disappointing, like not wanting to disappoint people, a lot of what the words in my head were coming of just like expectations. And um, I struggle a lot with meeting people's expectations and putting everybody's expectations to meet those so I don't disappoint them all before my own. And um, I, when you were talking, when you talk about um, as a two taking things personally, that really 
also is kind of a part that really resonates. I'm like, oh, and I was deciphering between two and six. And I, I'm kind of connecting the dots that it might be because of I go to three um, in the heart triad of when I'm stressed. Because oftentimes when I'm just in a more stressed, unhealthy space, I just... I don't know. I just I oh, I overthink past conversations and worry about oh I said this. I hope they didn't take that wrong. You know all of that. And I wondered if you can just kind of break that down a little bit more from a two way of seeing and a six way of seeing expectations, disappointment, taking things personally, and if you have any advice in that regard. Sure. Well, I'm going to say something, then you can say if it's true or not. Um, I take things personally that have to do with feelings and I think Teresa takes things personally that have to do with her thinking yes and that's the difference in the two of us you you can hurt my feelings based on you you can hurt my feelings with anything that's personal not Teresa I'm extremely defensive extremely defensive um but it comes more from an orientation of um, fear and anxiety rather than you personally hurting my feelings, right? Because if you attack my thinking, then on that point, we now put, we have safety at risk because sixes use systems and understanding systems and all that to feel safe, like we need to understand the rules, we need to understand how things work, and so, um, yeah, I don't really get my feelings hurt so much as I get very defensive, because it, at some very core layer, it feels like it threatens safety and security if relationships are at risk. So there's, you know, that, that loyalty piece and, and all that goes with that. So to me, it's more like relate, relationships are at risk, and that puts the collective at risk, and it gets to be a whole thing. So, yeah, but not so much my feelings. And, you know, she's thinking you, too, are thinking dominant and thinking repressed. I'm just not thinking. Like, literally, not thinking. I don't have a line on the Enneagram that connects me to thinking. I have to pack a bag and go. And so, for me to bring up thinking is a whole is a thing. Like, i got to bring up thinking. She has to bring up productive thinking. And productive thinking, when she gets to it, eliminates having your feelings hurt about stuff that shouldn't hurt your feelings. But I don't have any of that. As you were talking, I don't know, if any, but I, as you're talking, I, I could think about in my professional world of, you know, sending emails if someone misinterpreted, because I put a lot of thought into making sure that what I'm trying to convey is conveyed and thinking of all the, the collective and all the people that are going to on this email versus personal. And it's, I think there's a lot of the whole continuum of phobic, counterphobic also plays a role For sure. in those different spaces. Yeah. Are you contrary? There's, there's some in there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So See, it's such a lovely word, because when it's your feelings that are hurt, you're bitchy. See, I'm bitchy, and you're contrary. And now I feel bitchy about that. What, what, what but do Suzanne, I get to be? But Suzanne, I can definitely be a bitch sometimes. Yes. <laughs> like, and it's usually, though, when someone is, like, 
there's injustice or something. Sure. It's like I'm some just, holy reason some, that you're a bitch. Well, no, <laughs> no, no. It's okay. It's okay. Sometimes I'm just a bitch. Like, I, 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 the, the other thing I would say just for twos is that when you brought up emails, you, you know, I, I start with feelings and wrap with feelings. And I assumed before I started working with these two people that that covered it. And they ignore the start and the wrap. And they don't want any paragraphs in between. They only pay attention to bullet points. So I, like, I had to overhaul as best I can. So my agent is a six. I need to write a letter to my publisher. And my agent just said, no feelings. You don't need to, no friends, no friendship, no love the years that we've had. None of it. It's business. This is business. And then she said, after working with me for years, do you know how to write a business email? <laughs> I said, well, sure I do. She said, well, let's just have me check it anyway. Because I thought you could wrap it in feelings, and it would make it all work. And it doesn't make it all work. It, it, it doesn't even make it all work for me. But that's the, so there's illusion for every number. The illusion of my way's the way, and this is how I want people to communicate with me, so this must be how, right? And it's just not it. I don't want us to fall asleep on the intro there, though. That was spot on for sixes, that <clears throat> you're 100% a six. If you say that you're 99% sure you're a six and 1% <laughs> second guess is that 99%. I, w- I was sold. So, if she <laughs> yeah, was anything over right 47%, she is, <laughs> she is one of the most decisive sixes I've ever <laughs> yeah. met. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, this business right here is one of the dearest and most treasured relationships in my life. And I mean that, and I'm glad you're okay, and I'm glad we're in Richmond, and I'm uh, glad we'll always be getting together to talk about the Enneagram. As my crew that's here knows that I have decided I'm going to be unapologetic about saying this, and they're just going to have to put up with it, I am really happy to be alive to be able to see your face tonight and to see all of yours. So we really thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for being here. And 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock. Be there. And I'm so glad Joel has you. (laughs) And y'all are on a limited once a month conversation, period. And thank you to to Coco. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Thank you to Coco.